For years, there's been a lot of rhetoric about closing the Department of Education, and it's come up again. So we're going to talk about it on today's Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer at EdPost, a media platform focusing on educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Robbie Gupta, a former Obama staffer and a former superintendent of a network of public schools in the South. See, I switched it up just a little bit. Robbie, how you doing? Can't complain, man. Busy times here in New York City. How about you? Um, I could complain, but nobody would listen. Nobody would care. So, you know, <laughs> so I could, I could complain, but good to see you as always. I know you're always traveling and you're always doing something, right? You're like always involved in something. I like to stay busy. I like to yeah. stay busy. Well, listen, today I thought we would do this deep dive on the Department of Education, the rhetoric that kind of is old about the Department of Education, we should just shut it down. And it seems like, you know, every four years, this is one of the major kind of campaign planks for somebody. I'm going to shut down the Department of Education. And I think this issue, like many others, is an issue where there's a lot more that the public doesn't know about the thing that's being talked about than they do know, right? So, you know, some basic questions like, what does the Department of Education do? How much does it cost? What type of programs are in that thing that you're saying you're going to shut down? I thought, you know, as some framing, I would just go do a little quick kind of history you know, lesson. So first of all, in the Constitution, the framers of the Constitution saw no federal role for the government in public education. The Constitution does not give the federal government explicit authority to set educational policy. Congress's involvement in education has always been very limited. And in this case, it's been limited to specific situations by clear constitutional provisions. Something like, for instance, the making of schools for Indian students was something the federal government could do because it was enumerated in another amendment. I don't know how that really works 100%, but in some special cases, the federal government can have some role. The first Department of Education was actually in 1867 by President Andrew Johnson, and it was small, and it only lasted a year. <laughs> and, and just like today, it got caught up in racial politics, and that's the reason that it only lasted one year. The push to have a Department of Education had been pushed by abolitionists and some of their allies within government and was part of the Confederate states' mandate when they were being readmitted that they would provide schooling for all children, including emancipated folks who had formerly been enslaved. And that is one of the reasons why the first Department of Education became very controversial and didn't last the Department of Education that we talk about today is actually a creation in 1979 of the Carter administration. Jimmy Carter had made a campaign pledge to the National Education Association while he was running for office that he would create this special department. And by create, I really mean he was just taking education out of the Health, Human Services, and Education Department and letting it stand alone in its own department. Something like 17,000 employees and multiple billions of dollars to get it started. I'm going to stop with this one last point, which this is like the call for nuance, because every four years, it's a Republican who actually says that we should shut it down. But if you go back to 1979 to see who opposed and who was in favor of it, it's really weird. So, of course, the majority of the House Republicans argued against the creation of this department, saying that the federal government would start getting involved in local education. 
a large number of liberal Democrats also opposed the establishment of this uh, <laughs> of this department, and they feared that it would fragment a very powerful block of people. The education, labor, health, and civil rights community had been a block, a very powerful block, and they thought the Department of Education with a single issue and a single focus would break apart some of that coalition. There was a Republican, Frank Horton, in upstate New York, who argued that the consolidation of all these programs into this new department would save money and it would be a good thing. The National Education Association, of course, were strong backers. But this last point, the American Federation of Teachers, the AFT, as we know them today, and a number of their allies actually were against the the forming of this department. They opposed it. And one of the reasons they opposed it was they thought that it would give the NEA too much power, that the NEA would be driving the policies and, you know, everything coming out of this, and it would be less for them to do. Now, you know, people who, who might not know this, that NEA actually represents more teachers in the suburbs. The AFT is more urban teachers. So they're part of that civil rights coalition that feared that establishing this department would be bad for everybody. So that brings us to today. I want to run a little montage. There's a montage of the recent folks saying that they would oppose this office. Let's take a quick listen at the Republicans who say that they would promise today that they would shut down the Department of Education. I know conservatives in the past have talked about closing the Department of Education. Would you do that? So we would do education. We would do commerce. We do energy. Let's shut down the head of the snake, the Department of Education. I would get rid of the Department of Education. But I'm going to tell you what, if I'm your president, we're going to shut down the Federal Department of Education. So, Ravi, what do you make of all of this? I gave some historic background, but, you know, let's just talk about where we are today. Why is this popular? First of all, let me just ask you that. Why, if I wanted to run for office, would this be appealing to anyone to shut down the Department of Education? Well, I think it's a couple of layers in. You know, this, this rhetoric has, has been prevalent since I was in middle school. You know, Gingrich was the first to propose this. And between 2011 and 2018, there's seven different bills to abolish the Department of Education. Reagan talked about it even, you know, before 95. So I've been hearing about this a lot. I think it's gained momentum lately because of a couple of things. One is like the sort of anti-government forces on the GOP side have gotten way more aggressive. And now like if the FBI isn't even off limits, you know, they want to abolish the FBI, a lot of these people, then the Department of Education is, is obviously on the chopping block. And I think the seeds were planted really in this modern conversation during the Common Core era like the Obama accountability standards and race to the top and the aggressive nature in which they leverage a small amount of money to accomplish a lot at the state level, combined with the fact that they then were part of a coalition. And they're the most visible. There were Republicans like Jeb Bush too, part of this coalition, but the most visible national leader on common core standards was Obama, who was part of the culture war politics and, a, and certainly a target of them. That just began a conversation about the Department of Education, quote unquote, meddling in red states. And I think that has only gained steam with the sort of politics of Trump and the sort of MAGA politics that have made certain issues like critical race theory and, you know, other sort of dog whistle type of politics sort of central to who they are. And so it's easy to say then, all right, this Department of Education is trying to dictate its values down to us, the red states. And I think that combined with the fact that a lot of these people are either populist or they're auditioning to be populists. And the populist thing to do right now is to just basically take aim at any bureaucrat and tell them they are evil or corrupt or 
misguided. So you think this just get wrapped up in the general anti-government stuff? Yeah. Mad at government plus what I had described, you know, many times on this pod, which is my sense that like education issues have a slightly turned up window here in this campaign cycle. And I think education is a little bit, I, I think I said more, a lot more prominent was what I was predicting, but I would say a little bit more based on what I've seen today. Like the politics of K-12, especially on the GOP side, are more popular and prominent than they were in previous cycles. So it, this is like a particular variant of the anti-institutional, anti-federal government sort of angle that I'm seeing on that side. That's my best guess. You know, <laughs> this is what's interesting to me and like reading some things in preparation for the show. I read that, you know, what Benjamin Franklin said about the need for Americans to be really educated at all levels, wherever they are, if they were going to be entrusted to vote <laughs> and they were going to be entrusted to, to self-government. And he basically said the whole self-government experiment was relying on specifically that. Benjamin Rush said something very similar at some point. Thomas Jefferson said something very similar. Little known fact, I did not know this. Thomas Jefferson was on the D.C. school board while he was president. Did you know this? Yeah. So he was involved in national and local politics. But they all said the same thing. You know, we need an educated public to do self-government. I wonder what you think about this elitist take that I have all the time myself. Like, you know, this is me calling myself an elitist on this particular take. The only reason that you could stand up in a time when things are so bad in education and many other things, and seriously with a straight face, elevate this particular issue, like shutting down the Department of Education as a major campaign plank, is because we don't have an educated public. It's because we have an uneducated public who basically can't pass a citizenship test, can't tell you what these proposals mean, and can't tell you that there's like 99 other things that all these candidates should be focusing on, except for these silly little kind of, you know, red meat type things. Is that elitist to say that the only reason we can be talking about this issue right now is because most Americans aren't educated? Yeah, well, and part of what it is about Americans not being educated on this is it's multi-layered because the first thing I think most people don't realize is how small the federal role is in education, which is right now it's about 8% of K-12 spending comes from the federal government. So that's the first thing that I think people are misguided about. I think two is the department itself is, last time I checked, the smallest of the departments uh, in the cabinet. So it's actually not that big. And most of what it does is actually facilitate money out the door. So one of the reasons why it's so small and doesn't have a big headcount is because it's a lender, you know, student loans. It's also dispersing things like Title I funds and IDEA funds, et cetera, Pell Grants. So it's it's largely a lender. You know, I forget the term. It's like people say it's it's like a lending institution with a policy shop attached to it. It's a bank with a policy shop. Right. <laughs> and now that doesn't, I don't think that means it should escape scrutiny and attention because I do think what it does with that money and the strings it, it attaches to it, I think are complicated. And I certainly am very interested in that conversation around, well, do we have too many strings? Is it complicated? Can we streamline things? Can we make things easier for districts? There's a whole conversation around that that I'm very invested in. But saying you just get rid of it, you know, just to needless to say, I would want to know more about what you mean by that. And as I look at some of these people saying that, like Vivek Ramaswamy, like what he was saying about this is just without detail. Essentially, I think he's saying he basically turned it into a choice block grant program, 
which I think raises all sorts of questions about then what happens to all the people who were relying on the department, whether it's special education kids or Title I schools, et cetera. And also like how wholly inadequate the school choice black grant program would be. Like even Mark Cuban went after him this weekend. I don't know if you saw that tweet about that. So I think he's very, you know, needless to say, he's very thin on the details on this. Now there are other people like Heritage Foundation scholars and things like that that are trying to be more nuanced about it by saying like, all right, we would take this thing and move it to the Department of Justice. And then we take this thing and then we'd move it there and this and that. And then we'd cut this. So like there are some people who are trying to actually provide those details. I'm not sure those details as a whole would be very popular with the American public who time after time when polled about this actually thinks that the federal government should play more of a role in education, which is definitely not my position. But I, I think that the politics of this are not where I think the right thinks they are. But, you know, they are half of the sort of duopoly we have on politics right now, and they can help shape the narrative on their side. And there, there is some polling to indicate that they are making headway on their side on the messaging around the Department of Education. There's this piece in Education Next by Rick Hess, what it would mean to abolish the U.S. Department of Education. And in it, he takes a very measured approach in talking about it. He, he says, you know, this is, number one, it's an old kind of promise. This has been, you know, something that people have promised for decades, and it never really comes to much. And one of the reasons I think that he poses that it doesn't come to much is when you start talking about specific programs, nobody is really saying that they would actually cut like Title I. Or no one is saying that they would actually cut Pell Grants or, you know, the specifics of it. So what he's basically posing is the idea that what you would just be doing is shuffling programs. You would just be putting them into some other department instead of having them in one kind of efficient department. And it's interesting because that's the way the department was made. They took all these other programs out of other departments and put them in one place so that there could be some sort of like concentrated, coordinated response about these different issues. So he's basically saying it sounds good, you know, on paper, but when you look at the details, the details are really unpopular with the American people. I would ask you this, because I, you know, I, I thought it was odd reading this from him that, it, you know, some of those things are unpopular because I feel like Title I is something you could easily cut and get away with, you know, with the public. I think you could get away with that. The things like civil rights monitoring that the department does, like they put out guidance years ago about discipline, for instance, and it's not like they're giving you any rules. They're not saying you have to do this. They're just saying it's probably in your best interest to do what we're saying to do because then you would be complying with, with the law. So in a way, it's kind of a bully pulpit in that way. That's another thing that I think you could probably get by the public. You know, that wouldn't be very unpopular to go after that. Student loans? I mean, student loans are popular with a certain segment of the American population, but not popular enough to do anything real about them. Yeah, I think like there's this speech, I don't know if you ever heard this speech from John White in 2013. He gave to AEI, I believe it was, when and when John White was the superintendent of Louisiana Department of Education. And he in this speech he wasn't arguing for the abolishment of the Department of Education, but he was imploring people in D.C. to think about the experience at the state and local level with trying to deal with the federal government. And so essentially what John White said was, there's not a lot of funding, but there certainly is a lot of red tape. And he said the following. He says, in our state, federal funding makes up about 10% of education spending. When I entered my position as state superintendent, more than 50% of the jobs in our state agency existed within the federal programs office, each with its own tie to Washington and each with its own 
own point of contact in every district central office in our state. He talked about how they had, when they took over, they had tallied up annual reports required for submission by the federal government of the local school systems and found that there were over a hundred reports due every year to the federal government. It's not including the state reports. So I think part of what he was saying was there's two things going on. One is there's just way too much inefficiency in the way that states have to deal with the federal government. And often there's like many, many, many different reporting mechanisms that should be probably streamlined. The second thing he said was, and and they have real costs in how people do business and headcount, and it's almost a tax on the states who then have to spend their own money to comply with the federal law, both and then at the local level too. The second thing he said was, is that, and he warned of an arrogance of people in DC and, and of reformers generally with the sense that they're like sort of cooking up ideas at the federal level. And this is kind of the post race to the top world, but basically saying we're cooking up ideas at the federal level and then taking the funding that they're sending down and attaching strings to it saying, do as I say, if you want to get this funding. And then that adds up over time so that the federal government may not be spending a lot, but the strings they attach because of the money they're spending are actually quite significant. And that was the argument he made. And I, I've thought about it ever since. I mean, I remember watching it when he gave the speech and I was like, cause I, I came into this with a very interventionist, strong federal government role tilt. And I came to Tennessee particularly because of race to the top and race to the top is still something that by and large I support. But he did raise some interesting questions in that speech around, well, you know, maybe the amount of money the federal government is spending isn't the right question. Maybe it's what they're asking in return for that money. That's an interesting question. So on that point, uh, you know, there's a lot of like constitutional things that states have to do because, you know, it's, you know, it's just, it's in the constitution. They don't all come with money, right? They're just thou shalt do because this is what the constitution says. As a matter of fact, most of them don't come with money, right? A lot of them maybe do, you know, highway money, money for highways, money for like infrastructure, that people turn down and then they do kind of ribbon cutting photo ops with, but you know, they're railing at the government, the government spending all this money or whatever. But a lot of the constitutional things that you have to do as a state actually just don't come with money. You do them because you have to. I am sympathetic to the idea that you could always streamline that, right? Like when Al Gore came into government, his one big vice presidential charge was to streamline government, like from top to bottom, like get rid of all the paperwork. And every time he tried to do something, he bumped into some lobby. (laughs) <laughs> there's every time you try and eliminate anything or make things simple, there's somebody who who stands to lose from that. Do you think that things like race to the top, all those type of big, big kind of pushes are not something that federal government should be doing when from their meta view, they can see states doing all kinds of weird, different things. They can see Arkansas looking wildly different than Wyoming. And they know as a government that part of the national security of the country is that we are one country. We can't be educating America's citizens up to various different levels of competency and have like 18 different ways to to count whether or not kids are proficient and all of that, because we're one country. We're not France and Germany or whatever. We're like literally states of one country. And it's in our best interest to make sure that we have some kind of meta guidance. Yeah, I I think this is all complicated by the fact that the way this is positioned is often that that 8% that the federal government is spending. It's it's often assumed that if the federal government didn't spend that 8%, that the states would then spend the 8% the way that they want to, which is not always going to be true. So my sense of just how the way federal spending works is that 8% will just be spent on something else. So 
like in a world where like, are we going to spend 8% on education or not? I probably say, yes, I do think that the, and we've talked about this, the, the way that our federal government thinks about higher ed and student loans, which is a big part of what the department of ed does is so flawed and on not thoughtful and often counterproductive that there's a whole conversation about that. But just focusing on K to 12, I do think that I would say I'm persuadable that the federal government should ask less of states, but be more attentive to the things it does ask for and more thoughtful and more focused on them. But I'm not fully there on that either yet. I think like just in kind of like the past year or two, sometimes the response to stories like this, but also just in thinking back on some of these speeches like John's speech and just being down at the local level enough and sometimes charters, we have to submit reports to the federal government too. Like I do think there's a lot of bureaucracy at the state level that I often can't point to anything on the end of it that leads to anything good for students. Right. So uh, like there's all this red tape, all this, you got to follow this report. You got to do that. These guidelines, those guidelines. And I think in the end, the conversation at the ground isn't, oh, the federal government said X that can improve teaching. It's more like, oh, the federal government needs me to say this thing in this report, send it back on time in the right font, you know, whatever. And, and it doesn't really filter down to achievement. So I want to get more tactical about my question with you. <laughs> I want to put you, former Obama staffer, I want to put you directly on the hook. So the federal government creates a program that you don't have to participate. It's just extra money if you want it. It's a competition. And it requires you to get your labor unions, your politicals, your, you know, education officials and everybody on one page to use one data system to use data to improve education and whatever. I mean, <laughs> what's wrong with that, right? Like, first of all, you're not being made to do it. It's, it's, a, it's a contest. It's a race, a so-called race to the top. And it's really just saying, like, listen, we think these are best practices based on everything we know as a government, as a national government. These are things that we think matter, you know, well-qualified teachers, great data, you know. I just don't trust the government to know what the, what the best things are for students. And I also like, it's also a political thing. It's like, I think this country is so divided that, you know, we just had four years of Trump and now we have four years of Biden, could have four years of Trump again. And, you know, I think often when progressives talk about the role of the Department of Education, they think of, you know, Cardona or Biden or whatever. They don't think of DeVos and they don't think of Trump and like that these things like that sort of herky-jerky nature of our national politics means that who's deciding what is best practice for schools can change pretty dramatically every four years. And even in the best case scenario, when like the administration shares my political party, I still disagree a lot of what they're saying about what best practice is. And even when they're like trying to get at something meaningful, they are often like a little bit more political than they are instructionally tactical about what it is they're saying to states. And so I, I'm sympathetic to people who basically call out the arrogance of the sort of federal role, which I think is the language of whites, while also thinking there is a, a role for the federal government. Like when the, the first department was created, the original commissioner of education or whatever we call it back then, you know, he was basically, he was arguing for a data gathering role to begin with because it's very small. There were only two or three employees, I think, in the beginning. And the reason why they got in trouble was because they were pushing the southern states to report data on how many freed children were attending school. 
and that got them in trouble. So I'm like, all right, the starting point of this was a really good one. That is a good role of the Department of Education to be like, all right, we're going to make sure that we have a dedicated group of people, should have been bigger, and he was asking for more money at the time, actually. And he was asking for money to do that job, and that just the Andrew Johnson sort of people that set them off, right? And so that's a good role for the federal government. I think when you start getting into, like, you know, if you receive Title I funds or whatever, you have to change your teacher evaluation practices or shut down underperforming schools, according to this rhetoric or whatever, then I'm starting to be like, eh, like, I'm starting to get a little bit more skeptical of what the federal government is doing, if that makes any sense. I'm glad that you put that history on the table, because this is why I think African-Americans oftentimes have a different opinion than European-Americans on this question of, I don't trust government. Because one group really does trust state government. When they say we don't trust government, it's kind of that confederacy. They don't trust federal government coming down here telling us what to do but they do trust state government. Let's send everything back to the states because the states have such a great history of being so egalitarian with everyone that that's really where we should put the power. I trust state government. And African-Americans might look at their own history and go, yeah, you know, let's slow down on that. Maybe not so much because what we have learned is that states can take away all your rights. And if it wasn't for the federal government, like coming in and saying, no, civil rights, you know, fair employment, fair housing, blah, blah, blah. States would have never done it, right? You would have some states that would have and some that wouldn't. And then that would mean we would have Americans who wouldn't be free in every state. So I can see why one group would trust the federal government more and the other group would trust the state government more. When I look in education and I see the crazy different things that states do. Well, first of all, let me back up. We've talked about this a couple of times on the show. Some countries like Finland or whatnot get placed on a pedestal for, you know, all the advancements that they made or something. But the advancements almost always require them nationalizing education, right? Nationalizing the curriculum, nationalizing the standards and what an A and a B and a C is, like, you know, from different places. Much of what we tried with Common Core, but I mean, Hong Kong, Singapore, the Asian countries, Finland, most kind of like the leaders in this don't have this kind of wild west of, you know, just a bunch of states just doing whatever you want right? With standards, for instance. You know, the reason Common Core came about was because, you know, if you wanted to prove that more kids were proficient in your jacked up little state, all you did was change proficiency means, right? So proficiency in Massachusetts meant you have to be proficient, like to a very high level. In Mississippi, it meant they changed four or five or six times what it meant to be proficient. So the standards to say, you know what, we're, we're one country, we're going to have standards across the board, this is weird because I'm with you on one hand. I'm known to say, like, I don't trust government. <laughs> but in a case like this, you know, it'd be possible to be president and, you know, secretary of education. I've heard this from more than one secretary of education from different parties, by the way, because I've had the blessing of being able to talk to different ones. And they bemoan the very thing that I just said from both parties, you know, secretaries of education. There's just stuff that we know about teaching and learning and assessments. There's just stuff we know. We can't pretend like we don't think that there's some states out there that are completely crapping the bed when it comes to these things. So we should at least set some bar. Yeah, I do want to address that point. But before, like, let me talk about this distrust of the federal government. I think it's complicated because the federal government is a complicated thing. The FBI, for example, you know, famously went after MLK and Malcolm X. That's the federal government. The the current Republican Party orthodoxy in many ways is to defund the FBI, get rid of the FBI. Now, 
because the FBI actually was viewed with some skepticism from civil rights circles during the sort of critical period of the civil rights movement and was openly hostile to it, does that somehow hold relevance today? Probably not. Like, I would say, like, that doesn't mean that... Okay, let's stop there just for a second. I just want to say on that point, let's just make sure we're clear about this. The civil rights community wasn't against the FBI. They were against these incidents that were leaked that you're talking about, like going after Malcolm X, Pro, going after some of the leaders. But it wasn't the FBI writ large because the FBI was also the one who was infiltrating the Ku Klux Klan and finding out who bombed the black churches and finding out who was responsible for like the murders in Mississippi and why there were black torsos like showing up. If the FBI hadn't come down to Mississippi, we probably still wouldn't know who murdered a bunch of those black people in Mississippi. So I don't think that it was this universal, we just don't trust the whole agency or whatnot. It was, we caught you doing something bad, right? Like following Martin Luther King. And you know what? They didn't even find out about that until later. But that's just me adding what I think is a historic point. I don't think that they were talking about what people are talking about today, defunding the whole FBI. Yeah, like a good example, though, is like people like their version of the federal government. It's not like the civil rights community was pro-DeVos, right? Or what she was doing. Like, it depends on who's in power. And the same is true of Hoover, right? Like, I think as we look back, we realize that Hoover and his sort of version of the FBI was often hostile to civil rights. Some of that is the benefit of history. Some of it was known at the time. But I think it gets to my point of like, these things change hands and it's all about the leadership of that place. And we happen to be a country that the leadership flips back and forth as does the policy. And I don't trust that our electoral system is gonna yield people at the federal level who are gonna be both competent enough and thoughtful enough to decide what's in the best interest of kids at any detailed level. There are certain big picture things perhaps that we can get right. Like I support, for instance, like a federally consistent national standardized test instead of reporting of that data, right? Because I think it's really important. I think that's a kind of thing that the federal government should do. At the very least, they should mandate that the states themselves test as is currently the law and report the data in a certain way. But like when you go down shooting that, I start to have like like mixed opinions on different things that the federal government does, and particularly the way they do it. Often the big picture statement, federal government should do X, great, but the way they're doing it is often, you know, either ineffective or counterproductive. Often, not always. And that's where I'm sympathetic to people who are reformers of the Department of Ed not necessarily sympathetic to people who want to abolish it. Yeah, because it kind of feels like everything you just said you could say about the IRS. You could say about most agencies or most departments of the government. Well, the IRS can't be replaced. It's been proposed that they could. <laughs> well, well I, but I think it's a separate debate. Like, yeah. in a world where the, all these things exist, including, all, like, even the people who want to abolish the IRS believe that the military exists, there's only, you have to collect money some way. Like, so like the, the thing with the department of education is it's 8% of funding. So when we talk about like, well, could it exist or not? It's definitely possible that the department of education couldn't exist and that like either things are reallocated or the States take care of things. Like I said, I'm not sure it's that simple that they would be replaced. But I also think at this point that you're making about Finland and all this kind of stuff in the federal, I agree. Like if I were to design a country from whole cloth, I would want it to be more you know, maybe not even Finland, but like, you know, the UK where the 
politics all flow up to the parliament and even the sort of local governance all flows into the same system. And there isn't a state versus the federal government and all that. It's all kind of one mechanism. It seems more organized. But we have the system we have. And I think that we can't take our system, which is you know constitutionally mandated, and make it something it's not. You know, like we can't turn our system into one with like a super robust federal role. That's just impossible with the constitution we have and the politics that we have. So the question is, can we make it more federal or can some people on the opposite side of the spectrum think, all right, let's actually lean into what makes us unique and actually make it more federalist and maybe more federalism can help. Like you use Mississippi as an example. Yes, Mississippi has had many issues, but one thing that has happened over the past few years in large part, totally divorced from the federal role is they've gotten some policy issues right. And they've become, you know, a place where a lot of the experts think they are onto something. And they, they did that because they're Mississippi, not because the federal government forced them to do it. And I think that that's noteworthy. Yeah. I'm trying to follow this thread of the difference between the federal and the state government trust levels in the two. And I think the, like the argument around what Asian countries do to move their whole country forward and like raise the floor, like raise everybody and Finland, you know, and some other places like that. Finland to a lesser degree because they got off on some wild, weird, wacky stuff and, you know, their outcomes have slid. No one talks about that, have been sliding for years now. But, you know, Kathleen Porter-McGee actually wrote this thing a while ago about Finland's turnaround. And, you know, educators generally say they get all this freedom, they have respect for teachers, and her piece was basically saying, yeah, but before they did all of that, here are some other things that they did nationally to nationalize things. They shut down most of the teacher colleges. They had a million, like we do, teachers college, pumping out teachers of all different standards or whatnot. So they nationalized the idea of what level you should be at if you want to teach kids in Finland. They did multiple other things, right? Like making curriculum more kind of uniform across the country and saying, you are going to participate as a, you know, as a government entity, and we are going to have some say in what you should be doing, right? I don't think that we, I think you're right. I don't, I don't think it's impossible for us to move more that direction, because I believe that our federal government right now has more of a role than was ever thought in the past possible with the Constitution. I think if you go back 100 years and see where we're at now, and you would ask somebody back then, they may have told you, no, the Constitution doesn't allow any of that stuff that you're doing in 2023, right? So I do think it's possible to change what we have. But I'm still stuck on this one thing. You know, people in education know that we're doing a lot of uneven educating of kids across states. And they know why we're doing it, right? Not everyone is un uneducated about these issues. And they, all, they also know what other countries are doing, like globally around the world. And they know why other countries are eating our lunch on things like math and eating our lunch on things like science. Because you have entire countries that have one math program that is proven to either work or not work, and they keep adjusting it to go forward. They don't have 86,000, you know, we have 14,000 school districts. They don't have 14,000 educational entities buying just kind of stuff off the shelf however they want, willy-nilly. So when you say you don't trust the government and you mean the federal government, I just think we all know that states have been playing with the stuff, the educational data. They've been playing with the outcomes. They've been hiding kids. They've been hiding like their, their failures. You know, they're what we call failure factories. They've found clever ways to create kind of grading mechanisms that let them off the hook. You have some state grading systems that completely kind of hide 
the worst performing schools in the state. And we know it. But the thing is, like, is the federal government really stopping that? Like, what is the federal government doing? And when I say I don't trust the federal government, I wouldn't trust myself. Like, I don't trust myself <laughs> to say what is correct for 50 states in this country. I would trust you, Robbie. I don't, I don't trust I me. Trust and you. I think- you know why I would trust you? Is I, it's crazy to me that you would say you don't trust yourself on this. This is why. I'm your friend. I know you. This is why I would trust you, not just because you're my friend. I would trust you because I know what you know about education, about what I'm saying, the science of education, right? You have a podcast called Sweat the Technique. There just is an objective way to understand some things we should be doing and shouldn't be doing, right? So we can't have government people acting like they're political actors and then just not doing anything because we can say everything is politics. Let me clarify that then. I think a good example is often what I thought was right either wasn't right or I, I didn't really understand at the time what it would mean to make it happen. Like a good example is like the, all the teacher evaluation stuff that happened in and around race to the top. And I saw it firsthand in Tennessee or common core as another example, which is part of like what it means to believe in something for the 50 States is also to believe that you can make it happen. And Often there's like, yeah, like I have a vision for what a great school is. And if I can like snap my fingers and that school is the school model around the country and it's like Singapore or something, and I can just have that level of just implementation, then I'd probably like have a higher degree of confidence in myself. But I think the challenging part of this is the operational hurdles to make ideas stick combined with the political hurdles to make them legitimate makes it really, really hard to get anything done at the federal level K-12 right now. And that's a reality that I wish weren't true, but I, I tend to think it is. And I think like when you have the smallest department and you have 8% of the funds right now, I would want to bite off a manageable and important amount to do and, and I, I say this as a question, but it's, it seems like I have the answer, but I don't. But I, I, I honestly wonder whether we've taken on too much. And, and I say that as a question, not as a statement. I, I actually don't know that we've taken on too much, but it's just a question I have right now. Not because I don't want the federal government to play a big role, but because I just am, I'm, I'm wondering whether we're getting enough done that we're saying we're getting done. So, so let's test this out with you. Would you agree that Common Core actually didn't fail? Actually, states passed Common Core, and when it became politically unpopular, they just renamed the thing that they had implemented, and it wasn't called Common Core anymore. But Common Core actually succeeded because the things in the majority of states, the thing that they were trying to make happen, happened. And the way that they got around the politics of it is they just renamed the Common Core stuff. But it's in place in more states. Also, would you agree that, you know, we're better off because that happened, because there was that push? I would ask you questions about like, you know, let's litigate the past in some ways. You interviewed former Secretary Margaret Spellings, right? Do you think that that stuff that NCLB did that now is part of folklore as having not been a good thing and failed was actually not a good thing and, and failed? Like, do you think that like disaggregating data by race, having states test and all that stuff, does it live up to the bad kind of press that it's gotten? Yeah, I think the NCLB is an example, and I had kind of used it without naming it earlier as an example of what I think the government should be doing. I think Common Core is a little trickier just because I've lived through it and I, I still haven't quite made 
meaning from the implementation because I was there while they did that whole dance in Tennessee from the park assessment to the Tennessee ready assessment and all of that. And honestly, like you, you've, you've prompted me to, it's long been on my list to kind of revisit the schools that I was with down there to see what they think of it. I'm definitely open to thinking it's been successful. I'm so colored by how chaotic and horrible those few years were that I suspect I need to revisit it because my sort of feelings about it are negative, but they're just feelings. They're not actually informed by anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was a rather frustrating period of time. I think where I start to get into the territory of skepticism is like when the department issues, like we need restorative justice <laughs> and yada, yada, yada. I'm just like, you have no idea how hard restorative justice is. And it's an easy thing to say. It's a really hard thing to do. Some of the best schools I know do it but they do it in a very limited way and they, they work really hard to refine that practice. And a lot of schools I know and I respect don't use it for really very good reasons. And there's like a super nuanced conversation about how to do it right and whether to do it and an evolving conversation. And I'm just not sure like issuing a screed and sometimes attaching like threatening legal, you know, mumbo jumbo to it around a practice like that is doing anybody any good. So, and I'm also colored by the fact that I know a lot of people- You saw that happen. Yeah. Yeah, this is not just happening at the, by the way, to, not to exempt states. There are certain states and departments that are doing stuff like this too. I just know too many of the bureaucrats to know like often what they're trying to do is make a statement about their time in the government versus, uh, especially the political appointees, versus actually like getting in and doing the unsexy work of making what currently exists better. But yeah, I mean, I'm kind of going past my knowledge base right now. So I think I should probably take a step back. I would want my listeners to double check on this one and double check me on what I'm about to say on this one. The guidance that came down about school discipline to schools came out of the Office of Civil Rights within the Department of Education. And it wasn't spurred by them saying, thou shalt do restorative justice, which they never did. They actually said, here are some things, evidence tested things that could possibly be a solution, including PBIS, and some other kind of like, you know, discipline. But the thing that they really did say is we came in, we investigated your school systems, and there is no way to explain the disparities in some of your outcomes, except for racism in the system, like bias, like two tier systems of justice, two tier systems of discipline, two kids in your same district getting caught up on the same charge, basically. And one kid getting kind of like a call home and a pat on the back and the other kid getting some sort of really retributive you know, kind of nasty kind of outcome. So that is against the federal kind of protections on civil rights. So you're gonna have to do something about it, right? You know, I get where people kind of like, you know, well, they didn't want to do anything about it. They, first of all, they didn't even believe in it. We know some think tanks that are friends of ours that were like, no, it's just because black kids are worse. It's just, it's just because they behave more badly. And it's kind of like, yeah, but they're being charged in, in some of the same districts, same charge, same thing. Exactly same things with very different, you know, kind of approaches and outcomes. So I think in that case, I would still support the civil rights function of the Department of Education to do that, where they find disparities that they can prove, right? Let's just be clear about this. 
you have to investigate and you have to prove it. It can't just be things you're making up because you're Obama or you're sitting around and you like want to cook something up. No, you really have to do go, go in and investigate and look at the data and then be able to show it to a district and say, we investigated you. This is what we come up with. And you should do something about it because you're going to be out of keeping with the law if you don't, because there are federal protections for different groups. I employed listeners to read an article from Chalkbeat. This is June 2022 about New York City's push for restorative justice. And it talks a little bit about the federal role and how there was funding attached to it. And then New York mandated it. Teachers got pissed by and large. There, you know, And it was attached to other discipline guidance. It's like kind of a perfect mix of ambiguity around what the different roles of the city and, and federal government are, which I will acknowledge. I think as it relates to the discipline disparities, I want to remind people that this is a department that just a couple of years ago was in the hands of Betsy DeVos and could be in the hands of somebody worse in a couple of years. And they could be using the very same logic to push like, like they're doing in EEOC offices all around the country. I'm going to stop you right there. I'm going to stop right there. But hold on. Right now, equal opportunity commissions right now are being weaponized to go after racism, quote unquote, against white people right now. The Wall Street Journal has been reporting on this now. It's a big push oh, from Lord red, red Jesus, stop. governors. Stop it. People should Google this. They should Google it. Yeah, they should. This We did a whole segment. I know you love when I say that, but there is a huge push. The Wall Street Journal did a huge article on this a couple of weeks ago about how this is the new frontier post the affirmative action ruling is that the conservative activists are emboldened by the recent affirmative action rulings, and they're now using equal opportunity commissions and offices in cities, states, and you know, eventually if they got the federal government to lodge complaints against people for DEI programs because they feel like it's racist against white people. I mention this because the Department of Education mechanisms that so that go after discipline disparities could be weaponized to do some of the very same things that the Wall Street Journal is reporting on, right? And the question is, how do you want the federal government to have more power over that or less? I tend to think that the federal government is a flawed representation of our politics, just like state governments are. And like our federal government could be controlled by Trump. It could be controlled by Vivek Ramaswamy. It could be controlled by DeSantis as much as it could be controlled by the people it is right now. And so when, the more power you give it, the more you run the risk that people like that will use the wide berth of power that you give them. And yeah, the law, as we see it, could say that the civil rights statutes are about discrimination against black people, but there's nothing stopping a group of people who disagree with us from coming into the government with the cover of their Supreme Court deciding something totally different and nobody could stop them, you know? Okay, I've heard you. Now I'm gonna give my best argument to that. First of all, thank you for that beautiful argument against the 1964 Civil Rights Act that was groundbreaking for some, but was argued against in everything you just said was argued against. That's exactly the argument against the 1964 Civil Rights Act that freed many people from much of the state kind of discrimination that was going on in different places, right? Nationalized civil rights across the board was something that was argued against. No, let's just let Alabama do what Alabama does. Let's just let Arkansas, because, you know, I don't, why would we give the federal government all the power to say how we should hire, how we should fire, who we should lease, give leases to for housing and, you know, have no kind of recourse when state governments actually segregate you on purpose and draw boundary lines on purpose to keep you out of certain schools and have differential kind of resources or whatnot. So I'll say that what you just gave was one of the, I think, the primary arguments against that. The second thing I'll say that... But, okay, before you get to your second, The second's though, related to the first. I have to say, <laughs> but let me just say, <laughs> let me just say this. Let me just say this, lest I be accused of being against the Civil Rights Act. I think the Constitution does plenty 
the Civil Rights Act was actually used to invalidate uh, affirmative action in this most recent case, as was the Constitution. I happen to think they're wrong about the Constitution, but they're right about the Civil Rights Act's plain reading of it. Now, there are two things we can do. One is amend the Civil Rights Act to clarify it, which I think would be helpful. And two is win political battles to get better justices on our courts. In a world where we've done that, I would feel much more comfortable with handing over more power to the federal government than I do now. But right now we live in a world where Essentially, like the changeover of political party means that people can weaponize the government to their aims, which they have done, and they could do even more effectively the next time around. So that's my position. I don't oppose civil rights, federal civil rights, to be clear. No, no, I'm just, I didn't see you oppose civil rights. I'm saying the argument that you're making is exactly the argument against those. And then soon after, what you just said white people are doing now to weaponize government, they started doing that right away. They started doing that immediately after the Civil Rights Act passed. They, they started doing it right after Brown. So this isn't like a, this isn't a thing about whether or not government is good or not. This is a thing about the eternal battle in the United States is there are these two groups of people that keep playing this spy versus spy game. One makes a little progress and the other one tries to take the progress back. And they use whatever system. It could be government systems or real estate systems or commercial systems. The same kind of spirit of those bad actors can play out anywhere. So you could just go around saying, I don't trust any system then, private or public system, because this one group is always going to find a way to weaponize it, right? Uh, it's kind of like porn, you know, like, like everything that gets evented. Oh <laughs> this is why it's like porn. <laughs> so like every technology that ever gets put out, porn is the first one to figure out how to use it to their advantage, right? The internet came out. And before you even could buy books on it or whatnot, porn said, you know what? <laughs> hey, this is great. They were the ones who made most of the technological advances in everything, whatever system comes up. Now, now the second point, though, I just want to say, because the bigger point that you're making is that if we have changes of power within government, that it's radically going to change what these federal governments do. And my biggest argument against that is even while Betsy DeVos under Trump was leading the Department of Education, they were still investigating civil rights problems and they were still tagging uh, state governments and, and, and local districts for those problems, right? So there was still, it wasn't like they came in and they stopped the civil rights office. They did come in and they put out some, they, you know, we're going to repeal the Obama guidance on things, right? We're going to take back the letters, the dear colleague letters or whatever. But the mainstay of the organization actually kept going, Right. The Civil Rights Department kept investigating, kept finding kind of discrimination charges and, and kept prosecuting them. One last thing to this point is if you look at Ron DeSantis, who I just went after on this show, I call him Ron DeSandwich. If you look at Huckabee and you look at Youngkin in their respective states, the one thing that's consistent about all of them is they are passing these kind of populist, unpopular policies that I hate. And one of the things that I think they're doing themselves a disservice is they're also passing things that if they became president, if you look at Huckabee, if she, let's say she became president, she wouldn't be my favorite choice for president. But some of the stuff she passed in the Learns Act that wasn't the racial kind of, you know, nonsense, the stuff that they've passed in Florida over multiple kind of Republican governors is exactly the stuff that I'm saying that we need to focus on, right? Youngkin, Youngkin has this national populist thing that he's doing, but underneath that, he has a very solid kind of education plan. Huckabee is doing this anti-CRT thing, but underneath that, she has literacy and assessments and all kinds of other things going on. The mainstay of the, they're running on the wrong thing. They're running on the populist kind of, so if they became president, I could say, listen, I don't agree with this president very much, but they would probably still be doing just like George Bush did to Obama. Just the, you know, the, the thing that lived through all of them 
was that they had bureaucrats, not bureaucrats, they had professionals involved with their work that were really taking care of the pedagogical part, the the science of education part. So Yeah, I think if some of those people were, were the front runners for the nomination, I'd probably feel a little bit differently than I do today, but they're not. I think we'd be lucky if they were the front runners for the nomination. We have people who are, I think, are political arsonists who you know, are less interested in K-12 policy than they are in burning down the house and serving their personal aims. But I do want to read you something. This is from July 29th, 2019, Center for America Progress. Quote, this is the headline, Secretary DeVos is failing to protect the civil rights of LGBTQ students. And it talks about how in February 2017, there was a joint revocation of guidance for LGBTQ and trans students. Among other things, the list includes trying to remove questions about the sexual orientation of 16 and 17 year olds from the National Crime Victims Survey, delaying and trying to cancel a new sexual orientation data collection from adoption and foster care analysis and reporting systems, and targeting protections for survivors of sexual assault in schools, a crisis that disproportionately affects LGBTQ. Q students. And also, there are many paragraphs devoted to their moves on trans rights and trans uh, facilities and how they revoked all the guidance around that. That's just one issue. So I, I do think there was a major change there, and that was just 2019. But all that is to say, look, I think it depends on what you think about the risks involved. I just want to say for the record, too, I'm not defending Betsy DeVos. So anybody listening to this right now, I just want to be really clear on what I just said. I'm not saying, because I think if you got, if you check what I'm saying right now, it's going to be accurate. I'm not saying I agree with anything that you just said or her. As a matter of fact, I'm against all that stuff. And I went after them and, and others for that. What I am saying is still, first of all, when Trump came in, they didn't abolish the Department of Education when they could have. Betsy DeVos didn't stop many of the things. As a matter of fact, she was criticized from the right for allowing some of the mainstays of that department to keep going forward. So the left criticized her for the, rightly for the things that she was doing. The right criticized her for not doing anything much different than the Obama years. They didn't come in and ruin everything. They didn't come in and make the whole thing a choice block grant, right? It, all the stuff that could have been promised to the right didn't happen, right? It's such a big bureaucracy. It's such a big organization that has so many departments going on, many of them very much needed, that you can chip away at it. But they, you know, listen, they had it. They had her and they had Trump and they had the ability to make really big changes. What did they do for choice, right? Did they turn it all over to choice? They didn't. And it was stuff that they supported and that they talked about. But talk is like one thing. I will give you one local example, and I'm not going to name the certain person, but I know I have a friend who was a state commissioner who, when that person became state commissioner, quickly found out that the thing runs itself. That commissioner thought that that commissioner was going to come in and do wildly different things and change stuff. And that commissioner came in and quickly learned that the thing kind of runs on its own gas in a lot of ways. Like it would have been a very big project to come in and change everything. Anyways, well, listen. I know that we got to wrap this show. And I think this is a good deep dive. I, I'm always interested where you and I like land different, <laughs> differently. Than I honestly, if I'm being honest, I, like I need to do the call around to a bunch of the people I know who work in the department, who know the department in and out and get their sense of what's working and what isn't. Because like so much of what I'm saying is wrapped around a very limited set of data. And even as I, this is the second time I've now done research for the segment, the things that are and what I have not done is the the person-to-person -person interview side of things. Most of the things that are written in the public domain are so incomplete about the role of Department of Education that's often hard to figure out what it is that is exactly happening over there. And so I would say that, like, 
a lot of what I've said is kind of incomplete. It's almost like finding people I trust. Like I trust John White's perspective. He was a really good leader. So I'm like, all right, when he says something, I'm pretty much trusting that he didn't make it up. You know, so it's like, I'm just like kind of picking, but I don't have a very complete data set, you know, and then I think about my own experience, just like how irrelevant the department was to us in certain ways, but how super relevant it was in other ways, like race to the top and how it was even the reason why I was down there. So it's like, it's a complicated stew of, of connections. Yeah. You know, my final point on all this is that almost every department head of that department regardless of what party they came from, kept the thing alive during their time there. They did some marginally different things that were political, but in the mainstay, Reagan's uh, department head, Terrence Pell or Bell, I can't remember what his name was, he kind of argued for the department to keep going on. Reagan's appointee to this position. And I watched Margaret Spellings and Arne Duncan come from two different sides of the aisle and do kind of like a right up the middle, good thing for all American kids. It got interrupted by Betsy DeVos, right? And I think it's, you know, I think now we have the left-wing version of that. But the, the main point is that it has survived all these decades with some fairly kind of good civil servants who weren't actually getting caught up in all the politics. And I think that would probably continue. Listen, political people are going to keep promising this. I would hope that we would all turn our attention to something more important, like the fact that we have, because of the pandemic, we have a nation of kids that we need to do something quickly for to put them on the right track. Because many of them, you know, are, are, are going to be released on into the public year by year in the future. And uh, what kind of future are we going to have if we don't do something smart and responsible now for those kids? As always, we appreciate you guys listening to this show. If you liked what you heard, please share it and leave uh, subscribe to it if you haven't already and leave a message for us. We will see you on the next episode. We won't have Ravi for a while now. Ravi is taking off. He's going globe trotting. Uh, <laughs> so we won't have Ravi, but we will have some other interesting I'll, guests I'll check out some schools while I'm out there. I'm hitting a bunch of different countries on the other side of the planet. So I, I'll promise I'll, I'll learn some more about how K-12 is operated or whatever we call it over there. I'll be in Israel. I'll be in Sri Lanka. I'll be in India, maybe some other places, depending on what happens. And I'll be gone for over a month uh, on a reporting trip. Wow. I will say I do love, I've been to many kibbutz in my time here and, and in Israel, and I definitely will go back and when I'm back this time, I'll check them out. They're one of my favorite, they're some of my favorite schools because they're, they're truly created around a community. They're so unique. Each little one is different and they're almost like a mega version of the parent pods that we saw in COVID out of necessity. It's like, these are like super organized communal schools that are basically integrated with the communities that they come from. And they're like quasi-socialist, quasi-capitalist communities. They're very interesting. So I definitely will be checking out some of the kibbutz. I'm going to a surfing kibbutz, actually, while I'm there, too. As part of, <laughs> not not part of the trip. I'm going there for other reasons, but I've gotten onto this, this surfing kibbutz, so I need to need to check it out. It does not suck to be you, Ravi. Um, <laughs> yes. It does not suck to be Ravi. Enjoy that. I will be staying in Minnesota during that time, so um, I'm sure you'll have better stories than I will when you get back. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris, Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show.